Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I guess you're doing this podcast now because people are still going, what happened? What happened? Why did you make that horrible sitcom? And my nickname for it is My Lie Rules. Because it feels like My Lie. You know, you know, there was a horrible massacre in My Lie in Vietnam, and the soldiers were horribly traumatized by it. Fair dealies. The villagers were a bit traumatized as well, from what I Probably more traumatized, but also the soldiers were pretty traumatized because they were feared LSD and then told to go in there and slaughter everything. So that's all, I always feel like that's all you can really say about, about Melody Rules. It's like, you weren't there, you didn't know what, what we had to do. You, you, you can't understand it unless you were there. Hi, I'm Jeff Houtman, and I was most certainly there. In fact, I was responsible for it. I created Melody Rules, and now, in an attempt to atone for my sins, I'm revisiting it to try and find out what went wrong and how it failed. And in this, the fifth episode... I'm talking to all of my writing colleagues from that time to see what they remember and who they blame. Here's a good writer's room shot. Okay, so this this is a, a photo of like eight writers and, and I've got a large uh, pumpkin in front of my crotch. <laughs> and I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't want you to think that this is just a personal gripe session because it's not. Those times were some of the best in my life and those writers are people I'm still friends with today. And remember, this nightmare was 25 years ago. Look at those sideburns. Look That's at insane. That. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jeff Hartman sporting some fantastic sideburns. I think you could remove dead skin from feet with those sideburns. They are absolutely magnificent. They're so long that they almost hit the table. <laughs> it's, it's spooky. And look, yeah. everyone's looking quite... Mm. Serious yeah, for, yeah. A, for a comedy script to go through. Yeah, a lot of hands to chins. Yeah, yeah. Michael's expression is a little bit telling. <laughs> yeah, we were serious. We were working hard to make the great New Zealand sitcom, and we were all working on it together as a team. It was more than comradeship. Jack Tweedy. To go back to all the war metaphors again, it was like a core. C-O-R-P-S core of people who were up against heavy fire and they totally relied on each other and they didn't even think about those sort of things because we were all doing something we really loved and we all knew that we were 100% into it. I'm not surprised. It's because like we were going to Mount Doom. This is Catherine Burnett. As a group. You know, like we were definitely go through Mordor as a group and so I'm not surprised that we've formed really strong friendships. We were the Fellowship of the Ring. We were. Yeah. We so were. Jim McClarty. We really all got on so well. Yeah. And we were laughing all the time mm. and really enjoying each other's mm. companies. And then, you know, things took a turn. Because we were all laughing like idiots just every day because we were coming up with a lot of really funny stuff that just didn't make it into the show, right? No. No, exactly. And I just remember that. And I remember thinking, why has that not translated? That's a good question. Why did this talented group end up writing the worst sitcom ever made? Well, one reason was that we were following a sitcom model from America, one that we'd only recently been taught 
and one that we're all still trying to come to grips with. Writers have to take responsibility for this. We were new. This is Dave Horn. Uh, even people who are experienced writers, David Geary, he was new at this. And he was one of the script editors, right, so of the pool. Uh, David Geary and uh, Clive Copeman were elected to be the script editors. So we sent people away. They'd come in and pitch. Newly appointed table boss, Dave Geary. We would go, yeah, yeah, what about this, what about They would do a brief outline. They would come back with a script. We would go through the script. Then they would submit a final draft. We were like the site foreman. And table boss number two, Clive Copeman. And really our job was to make sure that it had a dramatic structure. And it was very intense. You know, you, you're going head to head and you had a deadline. At the end of that three hours, you had to have an outline produced, no matter what the writers came in with. If I remember, you would come in with, with really crazed ideas and it would be something like, uh, Melody brings in a dead cat and uh, her brother hates it and Neville's got tuberculosis and yada, 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 ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and Dave and I would just go, yeah, it's Jeff Day. We've got our work cut out for us. The problem with the tables was you had people running the table and the show who'd really never made sort of this factory line, mm-hmm. you know, because we were trying to do something different. We were trying to to get to that American model, you know, of of bulk where you've got 24, 26 eps a season, da-da-da-da-da. Um, I'm not sure it was ever going to work. In America, those table bosses would have been you and Mejera, you know. It was your project, so it would be your job now to just try to sustain the creative vision and make sure that we were all fitting into what the show required. But instead, and you know, Dave and Clive are put into those positions and they're coming in cold. I can't imagine it would have been easy. Mm. And it would have been a, another disconnect mm. in a way. Yeah, and a lot of pressure on them, right? Yeah. And they're taking on this show mm. that wasn't a project of their own. Mm. And so they're having to familiarize themselves with it and, and learn to believe in it. You might remember in episode two when we found out where the original idea for Melody Rules came from. Kate Ward Smythe and Matthew Donaldson had come up with a concept for a pilot, but then soon left after they became disillusioned with the process. So that's when me and Mihira took over, picking over the bones and changing their outline into the idea that was finally chosen to be the project. Now, this idea was handed over yet again. Without warning, we found out that these new table bosses were now the ones in charge. They were the new captains steering the ship in yet another new direction, while Mihira and I became table riders. I do know that once it started... We weren't, you know, yeah, we were just, we were the lowest of the low. The um, table, the table editors took over everything, which was not a bad thing, but still it made it a less Melody Rules-ish thing than it would have been. Not, I don't know if Melody Rules, even when she was Melody Rules-ish, would have been great, but... (laughs) Well, it was not a way I enjoyed working in, and I think it was a very masculine way. It was very combative, and it was like, Ugh. and you actually, you would come out kind of with almost nothing sometimes because everything had been just kind of, well, no, 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 no. And they were really vetoing a lot of ideas. And it's like, well, you know, they're only vetoing ideas because they don't like them. Well, you put two other people in there and they might like them. You know, it was all pretty darned arbitrary. 
like we hadn't been trained to be table bosses, but that's actually managing people, right? Yeah. And managing and giving people tasks and feeding back and editing. What you should have been was like, you should have sat there. John Voorhees should have been the boss, the showrunner. Yeah. And you would have learnt at his right hand how to run the table, how to make decisions, how to give notes, how to give feedback, how to encourage, how to challenge. Like, that's a totally different skill. Like, really, we were kind of showrunning without even knowing what a showrunner was. So who was this John Voorhees? If you've been listening closely over the series, you would have heard his name quite a bit. He was the American brought in to teach us the art of American sitcom. He'd written a book entitled The Comic Toolbox, which detailed the ins and outs of sitcom writing, and he'd worked on shows like Charles in Charge and Married with Children. He was the expert entrusted with our education and paid with taxpayer money. Between you and me, Jeff, I swear to God, I was making up the whole thing as I went along. I was representing myself as an expert, but in my life, I've always done that. And yeah. I, and I'm pleased to fake whatever expertise you think I have. Speaking with conviction. Yes, exactly. John has always been up front when it comes to his job. I managed to track him down in Los Angeles, met up with him in an apartment in West Hollywood to try to get to the bottom of how he even got the gig in the first place. I had been invited to Australia to make a presentation at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And um, Ross Jennings attended that presentation mm -hmm. and bailed me up and asked, would I come to New Zealand and do a right and proper development project? And what he laid out for me was ambitious and really exciting, and the terms were... Let's put it this way. I think he thought I was much more important than I was because he awesome. really, really took good care of me. That's great. That will have been 93, 1993. At that time, the world was such a different place. The, the, the technology of situation comedy was unknown virtually everywhere. And, the, and that meant not only did, did writers not know how to write sitcoms, but audiences didn't quite know how to watch them. And there was a lot of uh, cultural cringe, not just in New Zealand, but everywhere I went at the time, which was, the Americans do it so well, we'll never get to that level of quality. And I'm like, you've seen Bewitched? Yeah. <laughs> you have. We're not good at it, we just practiced at it. John's right. We had absolutely no idea how or where to begin when it came to sitcom construction, writing, or plot. We might have been writers in name, but in practice, very few of us had ever written anything. And none of us had ever written a sitcom. So, that's where he came in. I think his ultimate value in my career is that he's a great teacher. Of structure or other Yeah, things? structure and analysing comedy, analysing character. He could sum up the lessons in these great little takeaway lines that really was quite valuable to me. And I'll never forget some of the big lessons he taught. Everybody wanted to do situation comedy. They were excited about the idea of doing it in homegrown, in their own language, in their own culture, their own idiom. They didn't have the chops. They didn't have the experience. They didn't have the tradition. They had a lot of enthusiasm. Created a lot of opportunity for a guy like me because I could walk in and be the one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind yeah. over and over and yeah. over again. I think he was having a really great time. I mean, you know, we were all his little... We had his book, and, you know, we read it, and we were studying, and um, and we all thought, yeah, we can, you know, we can make it work. I mean, maybe if he'd stayed through the process, that might have been a better process. 
but he kind of, once it was all selected, he just left. That was it. Goodbye. The moment they said John Bullhouse can go back to Hollywood and we will do it ourselves, that was it. Because John would have also stood up to the casting decisions. Yes. John would have gone, hold on, hold on. And he would have fought, I think, for Hart. He knew his stuff way more than us. Writers in markets other than the United States throughout the arc of my career always had one problem, and that problem was they're never going to get paid enough. Yeah. It's just the money's not there, and they're going to work way too hard for way too little money. So the question is, what? how can I add value that will make people buy into that proposition? And one thing that I did was to make it clear to them that they were learning writing skills and techniques. They could have a practice of writing that would serve them through the long arc of their career. So it was sweat equity, in a yeah. sense. And a lot of people bought into it on that level. I'm sure you guys did. John was this funny guy, warm, super likable, the guy you wanted to be your friend. But the other thing was I discovered that if I could get people to be personally loyal to me, fall in love with me, that they would go the extra mile for me. So I think that I injected that emotional, um, we're all in, this, in the trenches together kind yeah. of thing early on because I thought that it was a way to uh, have everybody be more productive and more happy. The, the thing is, everywhere in the world I've gone, I could get them to drink the Kool-Aid because I'm, I have generosity of spirit, I'm genuine, I, I have good intentions, and I give a lot of value. I really loved him. He was a guru. He was a, like... I can't, yeah, I can't say enough about him. With John, we finally had someone who was the right person in the right job. But when he left, we had no experienced hand guiding us and fighting for us. We were just left to our own devices to write every episode of the sitcom and figure it out as we went along. It was such a sausage factory. Always working on the next script, you'd never really had time to think about the last one. Because everything was so fast, there was no time for anything. We were just in this hamster wheel of writing episodes. Never, you know, never got, got to, to sit and watch a, a, a recording. Um, never got to talk with the actors. Um, all these things were kept completely apart. There was no communication between the writers and the actors, the writers and the directors. The writers were in isolation. I don't think there was a writer's table read where we got to hear it and punch it up. No. And that's, again, it was like, where's the process? So all you, like I just had went home and read a script and went through them and then my eyeballs dropped out and then I got up in the morning and then I did it again and then I did it again and I did it again. Doing that every day was really exhausting. I mean, mentally, mentally exhausting. I remember I could never cope with, with the question, what do you want for dinner? Because I, I couldn't. I couldn't answer simple questions like that at the end of a day. It was, it was gruelling. There wasn't a lot of hindsight stuff. There wasn't a lot of, hey, hold on, what are we doing? Where's this going? You just got in and the snowball was rolling and you rolled with it. It's, it's, it's starting to sound like... Like, we didn't learn. You know what I mean? Like, like we'd get... We didn't get a chance to learn. Yeah, so we didn't have that chance to, to look back and, and, and go, wait, now this episode two sucked balls because... So let's make sure we never do that again. We're just like, I can't remember what was in episode two. I just felt that there wasn't any cohesion about what we were trying to do, really. We might have done better to um, 
really have worked to tie up all the the characters, their backstories, some idea even of the arc of the series. Because, except for you and me, everybody sort of came to it cold almost. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of the things that were there got pushed aside because other people didn't think they were funny. But they needed to be part of the whole thing. Yeah, so that was the hardest bit for me, I think. We all worked really hard. We all put in long hours. We laughed. We fought. I remember I made Catherine cry, and I I was hugely shocked that I'd done so and horribly ashamed of myself. You know, there comes a time when you... Um, here's another good one John taught us. You, you either move your shovel or you'll just keep digging more hole. And we'd been arguing over a script point, and I decided... Uh, I'm just going to move my shovel. So, I, But I was probably a little bit angry and frustrated about it, so I said something like, you know, fine! And she was probably as worked up as I was over this point and just, you know, I probably said that in a very nasty way and, you know, shouldn't have. Morale was pretty low. We were turning on each other and even turning on the show that we'd all worked so hard on. Do you have the feeling that we, we kind of gave up towards the end of that process that we'd sort of gone, we know it's going to be pretty crappy, because I kind of went, I just don't think this is going to be good. Like, I still enjoyed working there, because it was so much fun, but I remember thinking this isn't going to be good. Was there a loss of morale? Were people off, you know, cutting their own throats? I know for you there was. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, tell me about it. Tell me about you. Yeah. Did I I cry on your shoulder or something? No, it wasn't that. It was just that, um, yeah. Your scripts got a lot more casual, shall we say. <laughs> That's a very polite way of putting it. Yeah. It was like, really, Jeff? <laughs> really? <laughs> it was like, because you, I think, I think uh, you definitely lost a lot of morale. Yeah, I think eventually I did anyway and just sort of wrote what the whole group seemed to want to have. And... um I don't think that was a good thing, really. I think the same thing maybe happened to me. I yeah. gave up on the on the pushing, even for the little things, even yeah. for the little things that could have made it, you know, quirky and interesting and whatever. Yeah. I think I, yeah, I think I simply got tired yeah. of arguing for them and just went, I'm going to take all these cryptic scribblings mm-hmm. in the margin and just do them. Yeah. Just get them done and swap that joke out, even though nobody's explained why nobody likes that joke. Yeah. They just want a different joke. And I will just throw a different joke in there and not care which one it is and hand it in. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I still wanted to do my best and I still wanted it to be funny. (laughs) But, yeah, that process, you took out anything quirky, what you got was something very bland. And I do remember Mihira at one point, she... She was always complaining about her jaw was so sore. I think she might have gone to her dentist about it or something like that. And they figured out it was stress because she was holding it so tight with tension just all the time. She was just tensed as a tense thing because you'd be going into these sessions and everything was just, no, no, that's hard, no, that's it. I mean, the David Mamet thing still holds that with TV and film, you know. Film as a collaborative process, bend over. Yeah. <laughs> I can remember this feeling very clearly. Without anyone to guide us, without anyone to motivate us, we'd given up. And me most of all. 
I had started this process with such lofty ambitions. I'd taken the kernel of an idea and, with Mihira, created a sitcom out of it. But I wasn't passionate about it. And then when John left, we were a ship without a captain. There was no real leader, no one devoted to the show. So we all just ended up doing what we were told. And that spells failure for any project. A project needs to be driven by someone with a clear vision of what they want to do, with a sense of ownership over the idea. Otherwise you end up with a parentless child being passed from caregiver to caregiver without any devotion or investment. We were all too busy trying to figure out what our role actually was, meaning we couldn't focus on the job that we should have been doing. There was no spark from anyone, which meant there was no passion and ultimately very little creativity. And this waning enthusiasm made what happened next even more surprising. Because we received some news that would shock us to our very core. We were in the dark for quite some time. We, we were filming for ages and we hadn't been reviewed because we hadn't been on air. And then it got renewed before it had even <laughs> gone to air. <laughs> How did that happen? And none of us thought that we'd be getting renewed. And we said our goodbyes, you know, we'd packed everything up and that was going to be the end of it. And then I got a phone call from Ross saying, it's been renewed, can you come back and and do another 14 or whatever you said it was, episodes. Which, you know, that came as a real shock, came as a real surprise. They just all of a sudden, they said really quickly there was another series. And it was like, oh, okay, okay, I thought the first one wasn't going very well. (laughs) But... Far be it for us to say no in our burgeoning writers' careers. Did we actually do two? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even. I thought we only ever did one series. No, no, no. They ordered twenty-six episodes based on the pilot. Yes. And I think maybe only the first couple had been cut together or shot or something. I know they'd all been written when the someone at the network was having too many happy pills or something that day and went, you know what? This needs a second series. <laughs> But and only 14, and they're like, great idea, great idea, this is awesome. Now we're going to have 40 episodes and we're going to change the face of New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> New Zealand comedy. Oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, 40. I think the biggest blunder was shooting so many episodes and not having a test, but not going, let's shoot six and see what happens. Yeah. Like, that was just ridiculous business thing. Like, let's do a few episodes, let's see what it looks like. Let's retool, let's think about what it is. Yeah. I mean, I have a real what does not kill you makes you stronger kind of yeah. attitude. But also you learn from it. But the big thing to learn is don't go making a ton of episodes before you show it and work out what it is, right? On the next episode of The Worst Sitcom Ever Made, the reviews are in. As an actor, of course, you try not to read any reviews, good or bad, but you couldn't be sheltered from the reviews no, for the show. No, not those ones. We were just being slated all over town, and I found that really hard to deal with because I think, you know, we had a good time, and I don't know, it just it was brutal. They were brutal. The Worst Sitcom Ever Made is produced for RNZ by The Download Concept and Glynis Stewart. The studio engineer was Jeremy Veal. 
The coordinating producer for RNZ is Adam McCauley, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. If you want to catch up on this or other episodes of the worst sitcom ever made, go to the podcast page at RNZ, or you can find it on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Play. And while you're there, you can check out other RNZ podcasts like the new series of Black Sheep. The worst sitcom ever made is presented by me, Jeff Howell. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.